For full accident management support, including motor replacement, repairs and personal injury compensation claims, just search G4 Claims today. Hi and welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. I'm joined by author Aidan Martin, uh, who wrote the book, his first book, Euphoric uh, Recall, uh, and that discusses in detail his recovery from addiction and many traumas as well. How are you doing, Aidan? I'm all right. Thank you for having me. No, thanks very much for coming on. I'll, I'll put my hands up and be honest and say I've not quite finished the book as of yet, but uh, I'm delighted to have you here. And, and, you know, I've heard you on some other podcasts as well and, and your story, you know, it must hit home for so many people all across central Scotland as well. So uh, it seems to me that, you know, yeah. you've very much opened, opened yourself up with this one. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm in recovery and part of being in recovery is doing what we call a share and in recovery meetings you'll share your experience and my story was me sharing my experience and it's kind of just led to me speaking more publicly about what I went through and there are so many people struggling with the same kind of thing. I don't want to to go too deep and and touch on you know things that you don't want to touch on but for those that are maybe watching or listening to this and and haven't heard of you before do you want to give us a wee bit of your background on that? Yeah, and the book itself deals with a lot of traumatic themes. It deals with grooming and sexual abuse. It deals with growing up working class and the pros and cons to that. But some of the tougher parts being violence, um, not knowing who my biological father is, uh, the, the tribalism and the territorialism and the areas where all the, the violence between blood culture that I was a part of, severe mental health, you know, suicide. It deals with topics like child cancer, which happened to my family twice. Um, but it's more than that. It's about overcoming these things. It's about recovery. It's about hope. And it's about moving forward with your life and coming to the other end of it. And that's something, you know, that you've done to a great degree as well. And I've no doubt that you probably still have, you know, episodes or you still have times where you're thinking, you know, life isn't the way I want it to be. And, and I'm sure many people will as well. But... I think for many folk that have came to working class communities, you know, across Scotland and have experienced, you know, these traumas, it's it's not that easy to get out the other side. So, I mean, you must sometimes sit back yourself on the back and say, listen, I've done really well here. Yeah, I'm proud of where I'm at. I'm proud of what I've achieved. But I also know that I've been very, very fortunate and lucky to have good people intervene at different times and help me. So it's been a mix of the perseverance, hard work, determination on my part, but also because good people have intervened and you know a recovery fellowship helped save my life. I find I find that really interesting as well because I, I've heard people talk about recovery fellowships and I, I think it's an interesting one. I'm not religious in the slightest, but I sometimes feel people think, you know, often when you hear people going into the prison system as well and, and they've committed a crime and it's often been a product of their environment. They often say, you know, I found this recovery fellowship or I found God. And I don't know if that's something yeah. played a, a, lot, a big part in your recovery. Or... Yeah, I mean, the thing, I think there's a misconception as well that the recovery scene is religious. There's a lot of terminology like the word God and the word higher power. But that's only because when it was originally a concept or eight years ago, I think Alcoholics Anonymous began it like 75 years ago. And it did, it has its roots in Christianity, but as it's developed, it takes little bits from everything. It takes bits from psychology and Buddhism and 
kind of all that stuff and puts it together. And it's just a program where recovering addicts help each other to recover, basically. They're not professional, they're not, not professionally qualified or psychologists or that. It's just other addicts that you identify with. For some people, that involves religious or spiritual beliefs, but for other people, they can be atheists or agnostics. It's just one kind of route out of the despair of addiction. Um, and, you know, it's something I've come to realize the older I've got, you know, I'm in mid-30s now, is that the reason that was an important intervention for me is because there was nothing else. There was no rehabs in my area, no real awareness about addiction. I didn't know I was an addict until I ended up in these meetings. So they were like the only option and they were a lifesaver for me. See, when you were putting, I know I'm probably jumping from the post here, but when you were putting your, your thoughts down on, on paper for the first time, what made you get to that stage? What was what was it? Was it wanting to help other people or was it wanting to help yourself or probably a bit of both? I'd say both, I think. Ultimately, I knew that I'd gone through a lot of different things in life, a lot of different traumas. Uh, I often say I went through enough traumas to last three lifetimes. Um, and it just was the case that I wanted to begin writing and, and see what came out. Then the more it developed, I realised it could be something that other people might identify with. I knew that a lot of other people were struggling in society and maybe they would get something from it. It's funny that because you came to it almost in, in later life and I've spoke to a few authors as well. You, you maybe know, like for example, Graham Armstrong, who wrote The Young Team as well. And he talks about yeah. similar experiences as you say, you know, growing up in these kind of gang cultures or lad cultures across central Scotland and, and falling in with the, the wrong crowd, so to speak. But he, he always says as well, I was the wrong crowd, you know, I'm no blaming anybody else. And I think it's yeah. very easy for people for our communities to do that. But then to take the experience that you've had and, and help other people, it must be extremely rewarding. Yeah, it's, I knew there was a real problem with mental health and addiction, but I've come to see just how rife it is in our society because that just the sheer of people that contact me. And I mean just folk with West Lothian, where I'm from. And if that many people are contacting me because they can identify with the book, it tells me it's a reflection on the whole Scotland. There's a real serious problem. Uh, I totally agree with you know what, what Graham said about him being part of the problem because that's what I was as well. I was part of the problem, but we all grew up that way. All, all the lads I hung out with, we were kind of a product of our environment as well. Um, but to be on our side, it now feels like I'm part of the solution now. I think there's a bigger picture, though, isn't there? Like, uh, without getting too political in it as well, it's, you know, you, you grew up in West Lothian, I grew up in North Lanarkshire, and I suppose we're probably seeing similar things in our communities at the moment. I've had loads of, you know, young boys that I know, young men that I know that have unfortunately taken their, their own lives in recent years. I don't know someone in this town in Motherwell where I'm from that hasn't been affected by that, you know, in, in some way. But I think there's a bigger picture there, you know, it's, there's reasons why people are feeling like that. And I think a lot of it comes down to deprivation and, and communities being ignored by be that the Scottish government or the British government or even local councils to a certain degree as well. It, it seems like for decades and decades, you know, people thought that if we ignore these people, the problem will go away. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, it's just exasperated it. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree 100%. I think that the root of... At the root of my own addiction was a lack of identity, a lack of purpose, a lack of self-worth and self-esteem. No direction, no future, no hope. And if you've got societies, you know, communities that all feel that way, then it's it's no 
by surprise, there's going to be a cluster of addiction and a cluster of mental health problems in these areas, and that suicide will become someone's only idea of escape from that. What, what, what do you, I mean, you, you said earlier you're part of the solution, and, and I think this is probably quite a difficult question, Aidan, because I, I personally don't know the answer to it, but what is the solution to this? Because it's, it's now so deep-seated in our communities. I mean, when I say I'm part of the solution, what I mean is that I'm on the right side of things now. I'm trying to use what platform I've got to make a difference rather than I'm still stuck in the old lifestyle. But the, the people with the power are, are the ones that govern the country, you know. The uh, Scottish government, the UK government. We need a radical overhaul, in my opinion. We need, obviously, prevention um, strategies so that Young people don't grow up feeling this way, but we still need to deal with the problem we have right now. We need to invest in communities. We need you know, affordable housing for people. We need education so that folk have a future. There needs to be proper careers out there instead of just all these zero-hour jobs and industries that are going nowhere for folk. We need to deal with the addiction problem by providing rehabs and recovery houses and same-day treatment services and harm reduction services and we need to close the gap between addiction and mental health. In fact, we need to join these services up because they're, to me, one and the same. So there just seems to be, in my opinion, we need a radical overhaul to deal with the, the, the emotional malady that people are suffering from. And then we need to start creating something in our society for a bit future for people. Um, there's a lot needs done. There's a lot needs done. I think it's important as well to note it's it's not an overnight fix, isn't it? It's, it's going to take you know years to to actually get around this. But I've seen some of the work that you've been doing, you know, with recovery groups and, and talking to politicians, for example, and, and trying to put your uh, point across. And and I often feel that one of the big problems or barriers to this is a lot of the people that are in these positions of power come from a a background that they don't understand. You know, there, there's no doubt in my mind that the Scottish Parliament, before you even go into Westminster is predominantly white, is predominantly middle class, and it's predominantly full of people that have never spent a day in a housing scheme. You know, how, how do they understand these difficulties if they've not lived a day in those shoes? Yeah, I, I'm of the opinion that there's a lot of people who have influence and power that don't understand the communities. I mean, I'll give you an example, right, and I've put a tweet up about this. You've got politicians in my own area I'm talking about who completely ignore the problem with mental health and addiction they won't use their power or their influence to even acknowledge it but they're standing in the streets with leaflets and they're taking pictures and they're smiling and they're going oh it's leaflet day and they're, they're, they're grinning and they're posing and I'm like right but when you're going back to the streets like, do you actually have any idea what's happening in the streets and I feel like there's certain politicians that are so out of touch they're so far removed from reality and they do not use their power and their privilege and we get, we, get, we get told a lot about who has privilege in society and for, for right reasons as well, we get told about, you know, um, males having privilege and I know that's historically the case. But as far as the drugs death crisis, what I'm looking at is my MP is a woman, the drugs minister is a woman and the first minister is a woman and they hold the keys. Those three people, it doesn't matter about the gender, I'm just pointing out that a lot of people who are suffering are suffering because of addiction and mental health that doesn't discriminate based on gender um, and the three people that are in the chain of command from from my area anyway they're they're all powerful political people and, and they're all women 
and they all have the chance to make a difference. You touched on, on the drug thing there, yeah. Matt. I think that plays a massive part as well. People are very, very quickly to talk very quick to talk about a mental health pandemic, you know, but they don't really talk about a drugs pandemic. And I mean, we'll we have seen it firsthand in, in communities we live in. You know, it's, it's extremely easy to get cheap, cut up, dodgy drugs if you want to get them. And for people, you've touched on it as well, there's not a lot of opportunity for, for young men and women. You know, there, there's not a lot of jobs, there's zero hour contracts. And you can see why people turn to these, you know, profitable businesses, so to speak, it might not be legitimate, but profitable businesses to make money. You know, for some people, that's their only way. And if you don't tackle the drugs crisis, you'll never tackle the mental health crisis. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it is the pandemic. It's, you know, in the recovery scene, because of the pandemic, a lot of the recovery meetings, well, basically most of them just stopped overnight. And that was a kind of life thing for a lot of people. I've heard of so many people who are five, six, seven, eight years clean, even more, relapsing in the last year. Because that, even that simple thing of a community centre being open or a facility being open to put on a recovery meeting has been taken away. There are so many people struggling with addiction and mental health issues that it's it's frightening. It's actually frightening how many people are contacting me. I'm, I'm getting contacted for folk in numbers I can't even reply to. That it's, it's overwhelming to know that so many people are suffering. And this is why, you know, SMP went and got, they had a, a good you know, sort of turnout as far as voting and they were very, you know, they're, they're celebrating about how well they're doing and all that stuff. And that's, that's great. But the way I feel, I'm like, don't celebrate too much because you've still got the worst drugs death crisis in Europe and potentially the world. And there's a real, real problem going on in our communities and our societies and we've got nothing to be proud of when it comes to that. And to me, I want independence in this country, but I want to deal with that first. Independence second, deal with the crisis because people are dying, man. Yeah, I think what's what's really, you know, I, I've got the utmost respect for you, Aidan. You know, first of all, for, for putting your thoughts on, on paper and, and for being so open and honest with your thoughts and feelings and experiences. But, but more than that, is you've now, as you say, people coming to you in numbers that you can't control, you know, you can't keep up with them. That must play a bit of a part in your mental health as well, especially from someone that's been in that position. It, it's taking a lot on, is, is putting yourself out there to be the guy that, you know, gets back to people and, and tries to help people and tries to steer folk in the right direction. Because I can imagine if that was me and I was struggling to get back to all these people, my head would start going into overdrive and I'd be thinking, oh no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not delivering what I should be. And I think it must be hard to take yeah. that step back and manage your, your own expectations as well. It's been so hard. I remember when I was struggling in my addiction, I remember messaging Russell Brand on his page um, for help when I was, you know, really installing my using. And I remember not hearing back and, and being gutted. And obviously now I realise he must get thousands of people every day contacting him. So I've experienced just a tiny, tiny fraction of that. And in the beginning, I was messaging everyone back and I still try and reply to every person. But the thing is, I can't solve every individual circumstance. What I've tried to explain is, I care so much about what's going on for these people, but I'm trying to change things in society. And me alone, I don't have the power alone to do that. I'm just one one voice. But I'm trying to use this voice and be as loud as I can. And it's difficult because, you know, I voted for the SMP. I voted for my MP, who I'm critical of. I wanted independence. So it's not like when I am critical of my government, it doesn't come from a place of political bias. It goes against 
what I want to do. But first and foremost, my affiliations are with other addicts and other people who are suffering with mental health issues. And there's just a lot of stuff that's made me feel sick to my stomach as far as some of the people that should be doing more, you know? People that have a UK-wide voice and who have the power and influence to make a difference and to use their voice. In my area alone, I'm talking about, and they're not doing it. They're not doing it. And I'm just like, I'm just, all these messages are coming in from parents worried about their kids or someone worried about their partner or someone worried about their brother or worried about themselves. And I'm like, and that's just the people I'm hearing from. Imagine how many people are out there silently suffering and I don't see any representation in my area. I don't want to put you in the spot, Aidan, but if someone, you know, did message you and, for example, if I had to send you a message tomorrow and say, listen, man, I'm really struggling, what do you recommend? What can I do? And I ask you this because I think there might be people out there that are listening to this just now that are maybe feeling in a similar situation and they don't know who to reach out to. What, what advice would you give them? So this is, this, is the, this is a very important question because this is the part that tears me up. The answer is I don't know where to send people now because we don't have what we need. We don't have the right facilities and that is the problem, that is the cycle. Um, what I say to people is what worked for me is recovery meetings. And then our services, like in West Obrian, like we've got CGL and, and Weldas, the two third sector organisations, but we're at the bare bones. And this is the point I think that I'm trying to make when I'm talking to politicians or I'm speaking publicly to try and get their attention is that people are coming to me in desperation and I don't have anywhere I can tell them to go. I wish I could say, by the way, there's a rehab or there's a recovery house or there's a harm reduction service or you know, there's a mental health, um, there's therapeutic service available to you. Um, we don't have any of it. We don't have any of it. And it's devastating when people contact you to think, I don't actually have anywhere to direct them, nowhere concrete. It's really hard, that, isn't it? And it not to be judgmental as well, but it almost seems like it, it shouldn't be falling on someone that's been through this experience and wrote a book about it, you know, for people to go to. It should be a lot more clearer as to, here's professional organisations that, that you should be going to. This is, this is exactly where you go if you're feeling shit, you know. And, yeah. and I think the thing is, we, we have, we have organisations that are doing their absolute best, you know, like CGL and Weldas, I just mentioned, two great organisations that are doing their very best, but on their own, they can't tackle this either. This requires government intervention and a lot of facilities that need to be put in place that are not there. And I'm only talking about West Oven, you can imagine what this must be like for the whole nation but in my own area we don't have a rehab we don't have recovery houses we don't have harm reduction services people are still criminalised for drug use they're still in the criminal justice system or young offenders or prisons for the drug use the waiting list to see um, someone for therapeutic support was two years so I mean they're all same day services in England you can go somewhere like let's say you're on heroin in England and you go and you look for an opiate substitute you could potentially get support that every day. In Scotland, you get put in a drug diary and asked to come back in three months. In that three-month window, someone could die, they might never come back. So this is the point. We don't have anywhere near what we need and it's going to require funding and urgent action. And I feel like my own MP and most of the politicians in my area who are pro-Indy won't talk about it publicly because it looks bad for independence. It looks bad for whatever other agendas they've got election, you know, the elections we just had, so they weren't talking about this stuff because they don't want to talk about it. 
post an election. That to me is not a real politician. If you're an MSP or an MP, you've got a responsibility to your constituency. You're supposed to act on their best interests. To ignore a mental health and addiction crisis, to me, is another form of propaganda because it's silencing something that's actually happening. That's a, a really interesting point that you make there about, you know, you're, you're pro-indie, but you, you still vote in that way and, and they don't want to talk about it. I have, I've made no secrets as well. I'm very much pro-independence and I, I can totally see where you're coming from. As soon as you mentioned the, the drugs death total uh, and the way that Scotland's going, the, the unionist side will use that as a stick to beat the SNP and say, well, what would it be like if you were independence? But I suppose from the, the other side of the coin, you, you might have slightly more control over these things there. You might be able to, to put more funding to these if, if you weren't tied into Westminster. I, I, I believe there are two sides to that. I believe, like, I want independence. I don't want to be under a total rule. I, I want us to govern ourselves. We're, you know, we're, we're quite capable of running our own country. And I've always been independent, so there's no political bias to these things. But Scotland, you know, we, we have the same UK drug policy the rest of the UK has obviously the Misuse of Drugs Act in 1971. And Scotland's got a, a drugs death crisis that's three and a half times worse than England. We've had a HIV spike in Glasgow, which is the worst in decades. These things are happening in Scotland where we've got control over a lot of our own stuff. Like We, we have control over how we police addicts and, and treat them You know, as, as far as we're going to criminalise them or not. We have had devolved powers now for... 20 odd years um, areas like health and housing fall under our own powers so to just simply say that being independent would solve the problem I think is a fallacy but then the unionists are no better by or whoever else decides to use it as a weapon because what they're doing is they're turning drug death victims into political capital um, these are people these are family members of people, you know, these are sorry, these are people's family that have died and they're human beings and not to be used as um, battering rams for political debates. You touched on, you know, this is people's families as well and, and not to get too personal laden again, but you're now a father in your, in your own right, you know, and do you feel that your experiences in the past have, have shaped you as a father? You know, you, you said earlier you weren't sure about who your biological father was when we were younger. Uh, you know, you, you've experienced addiction in the past as well. And I'd imagine when you go through all these things, it must make you think about your own life when you do have kids. It must be a bit of a whirlwind. Yeah. One of the biggest problems for me now, I know all these things in hindsight because I've got educated now and I've worked in the field and I've had therapy and I've gone through recovery. So I've learned things I never knew before. I know that um, abandonment and attachment issues and rejection and all those things about not knowing who my real dad was really played into how I, I felt as an individual. And I look at my kids now and I think they've got a very different life. Now, I didn't come from a broken family or anything, but the area I grew up in, even though there were some great parts that it was extremely violent and there was, there was a lot of social norms that, especially in a lad's culture, you know, we objectified women, we thought drinking drugs was what, all we lived for, violence was we were quick to violence. Um, no one expressed their feelings. You certainly, you, you know, you had to be straight and had um, a French crop and a hoop in your ear and you had to like a football team. And, you know, if, if, if any of your friends was even like gay or bisexual or anything like that, it wouldn't be tolerated. And it wasn't because, you know, people weren't homophobic. We were just raised the wrong way. We were raised in 
you know, you would be like, oh, you fucking, if you show your feelings in that, it's like, oh, you wee poof man, well, fucking, you know, you don't fucking, don't cry and all that. You know, this is the kind of attitudes we grew up with. So everything about showing your feelings or being different or expressing yourself was used as a, a, like a weapon to attack you. And there was, there was racist language and there was sexist language and there was homophobic language and it was all normal. So I think about that alone and then going to a high school where we weren't educated, the school was bottom in the league tables for education and, and um, attendance and violence and all that stuff. So we grew up with all these rules that were wrong. We had all these traits that were wrong. We looked at other people who weren't like us and thought that they were like the enemy to us. Um, it was just, it was madness, man. And people like me, I'm five now and I've spent the last whatever 10 years unlearning all of that and relearning new stuff. And I think about my kids and they're not growing up in a world like that. You know, my kids are raised by us to be respectful and, and empathetic and caring and tolerant and that we teach them that diversity is a good thing, that you're going to have people of different genders and identities and religions and races and people will look different and have different abilities. And so we teach them that these are healthy things. Where I came from, here's the best example I can give you. Me and my best friend wouldn't wear braces on our teeth because you would get a doing at school for it. You know what I mean? So we broke our braces so that we wouldn't get beat up for it. Um, I remember one guy in my school having long hair and he got relentlessly bullied for it because he had long hair. Do you know what I mean? Like in some countries in the world, like, like in South America, long hair is quite a normal, natural thing for, for lads, boys. But in the, the 90s and early 90s, if you're a lad, you had to have a French crop and you had to have um, like a hoop in your hair and, you know, rockport boots and all that. And you just couldn't be anything other than that image. I think it's really interesting that, that you mentioned all that stuff because I totally, uh, I can totally sympathise with that as well. We're probably from the same same era and, and around about the same area, and it's so true. And I, I personally sometimes look at myself when I was younger and think, you know, I could have been a much better person. You know, I, I really could have. And it isn't until you are older and, and you've got the benefit of education if you're lucky enough to get to that stage where you realise, you know, fucking hell, we were ridiculous when we were younger. You know, and. And I, I was nowhere near as, as bad as some, but I, I think you're spot on. There was casual racism, casual sexism, you know, casual homophobia, etc. And I really hope that the future generations don't allow that to creep in. I'm sure that it, it will do in, in some aspects. And But I think that you're right. I think that, you know, people are becoming slightly more accepting. Uh, you, know what's, you know what's funny is that I'm, I'm writing a second book now and I'm reading about lad culture so it's set in the early 2000s and there's parts of it that I'm uncomfortable writing about because that's not the way people are now and my brain doesn't work the way it used to work back then but I'm trying to write it as if it's the way it was and that just shows the difference between who I am now and who we all are now even like all the friends I used to hang out with we don't talk the way we used to talk because society is, we're, we're learning and growing as a society. But I don't know, when you're born into a way of life and that is your norm and you're anyone that steps outside of that gets destroyed for that, then it's almost like regimental and, and uniformed and institutionalized in a way. 
I, I hate to compare us to our, our grandparents before us or the older generations, but I remember, you know, I used to think, oh, God, my granny's racist, you know, and she doesn't mean it like that, but she's, the things that she's saying is terrible. And I think it's true, so true. When I've got a younger sister who's just turned 16, 17, and... Uh, when I hear the way that she speaks, she is so far advanced and compared to even where we are. And I like to think that I'm quite progressive, forward thinking and tolerant. And it is good to see that it's going that way. And I think that you're in a lucky position that you've got kids that will probably highlight to you that how, how wrong we were as well. I think you're absolutely spot on. And it is interesting to say that you're writing your second book. And there's things that was seems like just not too long ago to us that is now so outrageous. You know, really, really outrageous how it was said today. It's even like um, there's there's a scene in the book when I'm talking about a character having a pulling shirt. You know, this is my pulling shirt. And uh, again, to lads at that time, it didn't it didn't mean what I now would look like as being quite misogynistic. You know, they just thought this is a normal thing. You go, you go and you pull birds. You, you pull birds. That's what you do. You pull birds. You fight the lads. You take drugs. You set two fingers up to authority. But like every single one of us was like that. I'm not saying it was right, it's just when you when you grow up in an environment and teaches you it's a social norm, then then you see it as a social norm. In fact, we actually thought we were all right and that anyone that stood outside of that was the one that was wrong, you know. And it's a, it was a hard, a hard generation to be a part of. Am I right in saying because you touched on the, the second book? Is it called Where the Fuck is Phil? <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. It's, it's, so basically, it's a hybrid between memoir and fiction. It's I'm wanting to explore lad culture. I want to understand or explain to people through the use of fiction and, and writing just why lads were like this. Like here's the way I look at it: me and all my my male friends, we could never sit down and have a conversation and talk about our feelings with each other. Right? We just couldn't do it. It would never happen. But if some guy came after me with a baseball bat, he'd all jump in front of me and take the hit from me. You know, it was a, it was an extreme way of life and we had ways of expressing our loyalty and our love for each other which didn't come out in words and expressions. And most of us had trauma and most of us had mental health issues and most of us were addicts. But it was that a time where no one even used the word addiction. No one used words like mental health. We didn't talk about trauma back then. None of that. We didn't know we had uh, class inequalities or we lacked social mobility. and uh, We didn't realise that half of us were self-fulfilling prophecies. See all this language? None of us used it. None of us used language like that. Um, if I had said in the streets back then, I'm going to be an author, boys, you know, you'd get absolutely destroyed for saying something like that because, again, it's just, what? You, you think you're up? It's like it would be seen as arrogant. It would be seen as, oh, who does he fucking think he is, man? You know what I mean? And it was just, it was in a very, a very extreme time. But I think unless you live through it, you'll never understand why we were like that. Who's who's Phil then? So Phil was based on my big cousin, <laughs> and I don't want to say too much about it. But basically, the the character of Phil is a is a sort of failed DJ, and. You know, he's been dishonoured, uh, I can't even say the word, but he's been discharged from the army, uh, dishonourably discharged from the army. And, you know, he's got a baby daughter he doesn't see. He's, he's a typical lad in a lad culture era, era 
has all the potential in the world, but has never been able to capitalize on it because of the upbringing he had and because of the environment he grew up in and because of all the negative attractions that you feed into. And pretty much all the characters in it, they're part of the sort of die and rave scene and they're heavy involved in the drug scene. But I've written it in such a way that there are no good guys, there are no bad guys, there are no heroes, there are no villains. It's just all lads in a lad culture. They don't have relationships with women. They're dysfunctional. They don't know how to express their feelings. They're quick to anger. They're quick to violence. They use drugs and trance music to deal with everything. And they don't understand what's going on around them, but they don't have the time to articulate it or the education to articulate it. And I just want to explain it and put a little bit of a fictional twist on it so it's kind of entertaining to read. But I want to explain why we were all like that because I don't believe any one of us were bad people. We were just products of an environment. Yeah. Do you ever keep in touch with your pals back then? But the reason I ask that, Aidan, is because I, I feel that sometimes when people go through these recovery journeys, they're often encouraged to cut out people that have been bad influences to them in the past. And and I think underneath this, you know, that these people might have been bad in the past, but to a certain extent as well, they're still your pals, eh? Must be really difficult. These these guys are my brothers, man. Um, and I, I love them all my heart. And none of them were like, we were all a bad influence on each other. We were, we were all part of that lifestyle. But you know what? See if any one of them had been born in 2010, then they'd be very different people when they finally got to their 20s and stuff. Yeah. If they were born this year, they'd be very different people in 20 years from now. But they weren't. They were born in the late 80s. They were, they were, they were growing up in uh, council schemes and areas that had social deprivation and a lot of violence and a lot of trauma. And honest to God, almost every one of us didn't know who our dad was. It is interesting, that, isn't it? And I just don't know. I don't know what the future holds for that. I really don't because I, I feel that I look at the youth of today and I think that the future is bright and I think, you know, they've hopefully got more opportunities than us. But maybe I'm looking at that through real rose tinted specs. I don't really know. I hope so. I hope so. Um, I certainly think, you know, like I'll give you an example. My son is seven years old and he loves makeup and he loves he's got all these dolls and doing their hair and all that kind of stuff that's already a shift there's a shift between what's a gender norm and me as a parent we don't put things onto him and we don't suppress him, you know, we just love him and nurture him no matter what his interests are and that's one of his big interests and honest to god I think he'll be a fantastic fashion designer when he's older but I remember being seven-year-old myself, me and any of my pals had said, oh, I've got these dolls, man, and kind of like doing their makeup and their hair and stuff. It just would never have happened. It would never have because it wasn't accepted for young boys to be that way. So, again, you know, you would have been, it would have been homophobic slurs aimed at you if you had any interest that seemed feminine or, you know, what was so-called feminine. So I, I see already a massive change. I guess there are some things that really dishearten me. Um, so there's this thing that pops up on Facebook. It's obviously adverts for stuff. And I won't say whose it is, but there's a person that's gone through a transition 
and their Facebook ad comes up and in the comment section it's just full of it's full of violent hate. It's full of loads of transphobic comments and I mean I see stuff like that, I think society's still got a long way to go. Yeah, I think you, you made a really interesting point there because I think it's it's amazing the way that you talk about I don't care, I will nurture my kid and love my kid regardless. But I don't think everyone is like us. You know, I think that probably speaks for the the journey that you've been on and where you are now, that, that you've got to that stage. I, I can still imagine some of my friends that I was pals when I was younger, they wouldn't be at that stage, you know, they, it wouldn't be tolerated. They'd be like, hmm, you're, meant, you're meant to be a bit more laddish or you're meant to be a, you're meant to be a wee boy, you know, get the dolls away. And, and I think that speaks volumes about you uh, in, in your journey. I mean, have to, I'd have to give credit to the Recovery Fellowship for that, but because some of the things you're taught in recovery is about tolerance and open-mindedness. And, you know, by the time I was in my mid-twenties, I was just beat down again with my addiction. But between that and then going to college and uni, like I say, I've had to unlearn a lot and relearn a lot. And it's happened at the same time as the whole world's going through lots of changes in our country, but, excuse me, far-reaching as well, whether it be to do with how people identify or whether it be the kind of politics that's happening locally and nationally. There's lots of progressive things happening and there's lots of horrendous things happening. And so me going on my recovery journey has happened at the same time as the world's going through a lot of change. I was talking to someone about this the other day, someone who recently came out as being non, non-binary and someone that I consider a bit of a friend now and we've got chatting and stuff and I said to them, I don't know why, but as, as far back as you look at human history, human beings resist change. We we find it painful and we're scared of it and we resist it. It's, it's so true. So, so true. And, uh, yep, uh, hats off to the recovery journey for that as well, Aidan. For those that are, are watching this and, and obviously feel, you know, quite inspired and want to, you know, find out more about yourself, about Euphoric Recall, about your, your future book, where can people get in touch with you? Although don't everybody flood in at once because I know that you're, you're swamped as it is. But uh, no, in all seriousness, <laughs> where, uh, where can folks hear, hear more about you and where can they pick up? And they can, so they can follow me on um, just at Aidan Author or at Aidan Martin Author on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. The book is available in paperback, audiobook and ebook, and you can get it from publishing.com or Amazon or you can order it through um, like Waterstones or pretty much just Google it and it'll come up with the places that you can get it. It's in certain bookstores and stuff as well. Um, but I certainly Google's your friends, that'll tell you where, where you can get it. Did you did you do the audiobook? Oh like, I did and it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> did you do it like in your own voice or did you try and like dramatize it or I can, I can imagine that being really challenging <laughs> so I did you know I recorded it locally by a guy who's got a studio in Armadale um, which is local to me and it was the first time me and him had met each other and anyone that's read the book will know straight from chapter one was straight into serious subject matters uh, and I'm having to narrate my own story and try and not sound robotic and try and give it some flow and and you have to concentrate on the words because like 5,000 words at a time and the level of intensity you need to concentrate and get it out. And then I'm talking about subjects, you know, on the one hand, I'm talking about serious stuff. Then I'm talking about popping or 
watching porn and then it's like talking about cancer and it's like it's just a book filled with so many different extremes and this guy who I've just met is over and I'm having to go through it all again and then talk about it through him and there were there were times when we were laughing there were times when we had tears in our eyes where we were sighing um, but yeah we wanted to do an audio book so that it was more accessible for people yeah. and I wanted to do it in my voice so that it was more authentic it goes back to that thing like when you say to your pals when you're younger I want to be an author that they laughed at you and, and thought okay do you think you are it's for me you know books and and art to a certain extent all forms of art is still not totally accessible to working class communities and I think you doing that speaks volumes as well thanks very much yeah in recovery we all say one day at a time so I'm trying to always improve as a human being one day at a time Aidan, I've really, really enjoyed chatting to you and I, I could probably speak to you all day, but, you know, it's been a pleasure and, and thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate that. Thank you for having me. No worries. For those that have, have enjoyed this, please check out uh, Aidan's books. Check them out online as well. Like and subscribe to the podcast and thanks so much for tuning in. Cheers. Cheers.